0: Well, this past week, perhaps many of you have done as I have done, and that is open the news. See what's going on in the world, not only immediately around you in the city of Miami or in your own country, but just in the world at large. And as you know, our attention is divided. Many news feeders are turning our attention to the east of what's taking place in China. At the beginning of the Winter Olympics, Already hearing the good news of Julia Marino getting a second place, a silver medal in the women's snowboarding, the first medal for the United States of America. Looking at the highlights featured on NBC. But the truth is, if you go to any Google News feeder, any news supply source, you're often having your attention drawn to the West. Not the East, the West. As we're reminded day after day, of what looks to be an increasingly perilous situation between Russia and Ukraine, or of Ukraine. 130,000 Rus- Russia has 70% of the military capabilities in place for a full scale invasion. Jerusalem Post tells us 50,000 casualties, 5 million refugees expected if Russia invades Ukraine. Moscow Times says, U.S. officials say Russia preparing full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Like, well, because it looks like you are. Life is like this. It's filled with uncertainty. We can imagine a life without difficulty, without surprise, but the truth is many events take place in life that we did not expect, that we did not see coming. We weren't even sure it was going to happen. The question is where it was going to happen. The question is whether or not we have made preparations for that. When I became married to my wife, Danelle, over 25 years I wanted to make to my wife at the very beginning was that I would do everything in my power to be able to provide for her. At times that meant having to work multiple jobs, not because she's that high maintenance, but because at the same time we were living in Los Angeles. I was in seminary and doing other side ministry jobs to the tune of 40 to 60 hours a week. But one such decision I made at the very outset of our marriage is say, listen, I will get a life insurance policy so that in the event that I die, you should be okay, you would be provided for. And so I did that. I did that with the prospect that any time I might die... And then, in doing so, my wife might be without financial hardships as much as I could possibly provide for her. But the truth is, there's a lot of things that you just don't know what to expect. Events that will take place, not simply about your life or the lives around you, but even what God is doing in the world. Well, today, we're going to learn of an event that will certainly take place. We don't know when it will be, but it will be. The question is, are we going to have to wrestle with, this morning is, are we ready? I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 if you've not done so already. If you're just joining us for the first time, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is an eyewitness to the person and the teachings of Jesus. He has seen with his eyes, he has heard with his ears, and now he is writing with his hands what he has seen. As we know, this writing is led and been moved along, carried along by the Holy Spirit, so it's written by Matthew and the Spirit of God as these words have been protected and preserved for us today. We're coming into this final week of Jesus' life before His crucifixion. And we are what we saw in the previous weeks known as the Olivet Discourse. We got that title because of Matthew 24, verse 3. He says, he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now, for those of you not familiar, as I've said before, it's not, he's not sitting on a pile of olives. He's sitting on a hill known for all of its trees. That would be olive trees. And Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is a private conversation, but recorded so it might be a public presentation for people like you and I later. Thousands of years later. It's an important conversation because in Matthew 24, Jesus is answering questions that the disciples are asking, and they're asking him these questions because of what he said in the beginning of verses 1 and 2. When he talked about the temple being torn down, and so they begin to ask questions in verse 3 of chapter 24, tell us when will these things be, what will be the sign of their coming, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? That takes us to where we're going to pick back up, where we left off in the previous weeks, Matthew chapter 24. And what we're going to see is in verses 36 through chapter 25, verse 13, what I want you to see in this text, in 24, verse 36 to 25, verse 13, I want you to notice there are going to be five stories that Jesus tells, five stories that all ultimately teach the same main So follow along as I read to you, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 25, verse 13. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Here's the first story, verse 37. But for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the son of Man. Now here's the second story. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will left, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Now, the third story. But know this. The master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, the fourth story. Who then is faithful is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes truly I say to you he will set him over all his possessions but if that wicked servant says to himself my master is delayed And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And now the fifth story. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for themselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We'll stop there. What we have is Matthew's record of this repeating lesson that Jesus is teaching His disciples. And we're going to kind of go through this to kind of understand some overlapping lessons to learn here as we can see the context. And first of all, here's what we need to learn. First of all, Jesus wants us to recognize we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Now, going back to verse 36, because we're kind of parachuting into the text, the conversation that Jesus has been having is about the coming of the Son of Man. It says in verse 38, excuse me, in verse 30, that you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And the question is, when will this take place? That's essentially the question that they're asking back in verse 3. Jesus, when will this happen? They're looking for a time. Jesus does not give that time. No one knows when Christ will come. That's exactly what we see in verse 36 and verse 42. In fact, he says something kind of disorienting if you look back at verse 36. He says, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. This has had many people scratching their heads with confusion. Wait, I thought Jesus is God, and being God, I thought He knew everything, so how does He not know even the very event He is speaking about? Well, it's important to recognize even in this incident that's being described here, Jesus is, you have to understand, is both full of God and fully human. That's what's the miracle of His incarnation when He came into human form. As it describes, He took on the likeness of being human. And we know this throughout the Scriptures, the account. Jesus grew physically like you have grown physically. He became strong. He increased in wisdom. He was tired. He was thirsty and hungry. He was even eventually physically crucified, killed on a cross, On the other hand, Jesus is also fully God. And as God, He has infinite knowledge. In fact, there's examples where you have a situation where people are having thoughts in their head, and Jesus responds to those thoughts by speaking to them directly about what they're thinking about. You're like, how did that just happen? Because He is God. Jesus is walking on water. Jesus is rising the dead. Jesus is exercising demons. He has divine power. In this context here... Jesus is speaking to His humanity, apparently speaking to this, the properties of His deity and the properties of humanity both being preserved in the scriptural account, speaking to the specifics of the timing of this. Now He gets into the first story, if you will, the times of Noah. Noah. It's interesting as he describes Noah, a text we're going to look at a little bit later this morning in 2 Peter, which we will not turn there yet, but he describes this time of Noah as being a normal time, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Like, what's the difference? Well, the idea of marrying would be particularly referring to the men. Giving in marriage would be referring to the women. He's saying, listen, it was just normal life. They lived normal life. They did normal things, except it came to an abnormal end. That they did not expect. The problem was not the activity, the problem was the lack of preparation and receptivity. Presumably, they did not share in Noah's wholehearted commitment to the service of God. They did not know what was coming on the earth. They would have disregarded Noah and what he said to them, doubtless, believing firmly that their views were just as valid as his views much of like what we hear many people today say. But such convictions were not accurate because the flood came and took them all away. And it's a shocking story to begin with of the five stories because it leaves undeniable, without any reservation or hesitation, what is on the line here. Complete and utter comprehensive judgment. Against those who have not found safety in the ark, but those who have not found safety in Christ, crucified on the cross. We see this as a radical reminder. The purposes that God has worked out are quite irrespective of what humans think about them. Jesus is saying that people will in this way continue to be about their normal business right up to the very end of His coming that will be the critical point, but it will be too late. Why? Because the coming of the Son of Man will be just as abrupt, just as unexpected, and just as decisive as the flood was in the times of Noah. Interesting to hear the significance of this. It's been proposed by some people today as a way to kind of deconstruct the Bible, that what's being described in Genesis was maybe a water-like event that was catastrophic, but nothing more than we might see, for example, in the days of hurricanes today, tsunamis, tidal waves, massive flooding, but nothing global when actually the fossil record says something totally different, and Jesus completely believes something totally different, that it is global. It is sudden, and it has serious consequences. What we're seeing here is that what is most important that Jesus is teaching is what is most important is not when He returns, but that we are ready for Him when He does return. I mean, this is a significant point to consider, just as a point of reflection, need to be ready. Ready. Friends, if you knew you're going on a trip a year from now, quite honestly, unless it was one that you're looking forward to, you probably wouldn't think much about it at all. You certainly wouldn't be packing for it. But so that actual trip, that return at the front of our th- will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. And we'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some of you right now are like, wait a minute, dude, you just say someone's being cut in half? Well, to be clear, what's being described here the wise servant and the wicked servant is not a, con- a connection between a good Christian and a bad Christian. It's not what's being said here. This idea of servant is a stewardship that the Creator, in this case the Master, has given to all of His creation and how they conduct themselves while He is away, how they handle themselves here in His absence. As to the person being cut in pieces, it's a metaphor that he describes because in the next part of the text, you see, putting him with the hypocrites is just simply describing who he is placing him with. The point you can see here is that there are consequences that come with eternal results. What we see here in the text is this commendation that Jesus has of Wisdom. Wisdom versus foolishness, wisdom versus wickedness. And it really kind of comes down to how they use their time now. How to use your time now. Now friends, this is an important lesson for us to learn for those of us who are Christians. Because we need to recognize that this is not simply an exercise, are you ready, as a indicative of whether or not your faith is in Christ, but are you ready as to how you're using your time now while you're waiting for His return? Too often, and for too long, many Christians have been spent spending their time in such a way that they are actually living as if Christ is never coming back, as if there's no account for their decisions, and they're simply choosing to elect to interact with the Bible whenever it ethically becomes helpful, clarifying, comforting, assuring. But they largely leave their opinions to be the supreme court of their decisions, deciding how they will spend their time, where they will invest their money, to whom they will date and marry, how they will raise kids, what they do on their weekend, how they decide to pursue their future. He's saying, you are thinking completely wrong if you think this way. You should be thinking wisely and responsibly. Which is exactly what he's getting to with the parable of the 10 virgins. Look at chapter 25. He tells the story of the 10 virgins. Now, for most people in this room, this is like, what in the world's happening? You got oil, you got virgins, you got like some nighttime party. What's taking place? Well, let me explain this to you in its context historically. So, in that context, back then, when you had a wedding, it was a huge celebration. A lot of the people in the village would come to, if not all of them would come to in the neighborhood part of the community they're a part of. And kind of the three parts to a, a, a marriage, if you will, would be the betrothal, which would be largely done by moms and dads. The moms and dads would determine which daughter their son would marry, which son their daughter would marry, and they would have a conversation, a relationship between the parents where that decision was to be made. Some parents in the room right now are like, Amen. Some other people like, please, God, don't let that be so. So a betrothal would be a relationship that would be determined ahead of time. And then what would happen is, then there would be a time where they would come together, the, the, the bride and groom to be to come together, and they would exchange vows, and they would be betrothed to one another. And that would be seen in that cultural context as like you were married without yet having consummated the relationship, which meant had not been sexually intimate with each other yet, had not, had not been together yet. So they were still separate but they came together to exchange these vows. And it was binding vows. It was binding so referring to. Then later on, there would be at some undisclosed time, there would be a time when the, the groom-to-be would take his grooms in with him, and they would go to the bride's place with her bridal party where they would then get her. And they would celebrate this through the streets. And they would have this time This wedding feast would be held at the end of the betrothal period. And the, the wedding feast would last up to a week long. But it all began with the groom coming with his groomsmen to the bride's house, where her bridesmaids were waiting with her for the groom to come. And together the bride and groom and the wedding party would parade through the streets, proclaiming the beginning of the festival, everybody is now invited. That's the context. So you go back to the text that says in verse 5, five were foolish, verse 2, five were wise. Why? Because it says, the foolish took their lamps, but they had no oil with them. The wise took their flasso and they were with their lamps. Verse 5, the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy. It's not, not a problem. Then slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But as the wise answered, saying, since there will be not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Now before we get to verse 11 just consider with me here the significance There is an expectation of the arrival of the groom but there's not preparation Expectation without preparation is foolishness And that needs to not be missed by us today because that's what Jesus is commending here is that they were prepared they were ready So to those Christians here, let me just ask you, what decision or decisions are you making today, plans for tomorrow, that you are ready for Christ to come and for that to be consistent with His return? How is it that the things that you are prioritizing with your time, with your passions, with your money? Now, by no means is this meaning you should only just be sitting around doing Bible study all day long. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is talking about one who's in the field, one who's grinding out, one who's preparing and waiting, even sleeping, eating, drinking. The problem is not what they're doing. The problem is are they prepared for one who is coming? And I think what's unfortunate is to watch many of us as Christians live lives they look more like non-Christian friends and family around us as if they're not expecting Christ to come at all, as if there's no account, no expectation, no anticipation of His return. So we need to be wise at how we think through this, what decisions we make today. I mean, think about it. As I said earlier, if you're going on a trip and you had time to pack, what would you do? Well, you should pack now. The problem is, too often we want to put things in our bags that we can't take with us. Friends, people are eternal. Possessions are not. How are we making decisions with relationships that are investing in eternity? Too often we cling too tightly to possessions as if they define us and provide security for us and give us our identity. And all of that is like sand in our hands. Which takes us to our third lesson to learn We need to be evangelistic. We need to be ready. We need to be wise. We need to be evangelistic. The reality is that some will have lived with no thought for the things of God. And in that day, they will, of course, have no part in the things of God. Have no thought of God, they'll have no part in the things of God. So the question that we have to consider is, how can we help this? In fact, go back to the text. Go back to how often he talks about this. Let's look as if you will. He's talking about that no one knows, verse 36. And it says, verse 39, that as they were unaware, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know what the day of the Lord is coming. Verse 44, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. Again, verse 50, uh, when he does not expect him an hour, he does not know. Master's coming back. And again, verse 13 watch, therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. Friends, there is a constant reminder to us as Christians why we are to be busy in the work of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Why we desire to be doing that. In fact, just this past week, I was teaching at a conference uh, for pastors, and they had a phenomenal bookstore. Not all bookstores are phenomenal. This one was. And uh, a little book titled Evangelistic Living, Sharing the Gospel Day by Day by Roger Carswell, a man who lives in in, uh, London. Uh, Roger has made a decision that he would share the gospel every day with someone without fail by God's grace. And he has done so for over 40 years. Not like in a weird way, but like in a genuinely, like biblically faithful, accurate, engaging way. And I thought, I want to learn from Roger. I want to be reminded what it's like to be thinking like Roger. And just to to share with you as he describes it to you, we need to ensure that we get the right seed. We need to sow and scatter the seed. We need to wait and water the seed. We need to know when it's time to harvest and hoard the seed. And then recommended reading on this. I thinking not just of myself, thinking of you guys. I bought as many of these as they had, and I brought them all back. I don't know, it's like thirty of them or so. And if you want a copy and you want to read with me, just come see me after the service. I will give you a copy for free, but you got to promise to read it. We're not like giving away books for you to collect books. We're like book collectors, we're book readers. So if you want to do this with me, you want to think this with me, I would say, come see me and we can think about this together. Because the point is this, we as Christians want to be faithful to not just saying we want to see people come to faith in Christ. We want people to be faithful like ourselves to be actually telling people about Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly appreciate the hope I have in Christ the eternal security I have. Well, that came as a result of somebody else's labor, somebody else's prayer, somebody else's pursuit. The somebody else told me the awkward, uncomfortable conversation about life that I was living, it was not going to be the best life now. But that Indeed, I need to know something truth about myself, which is that there's only one God. There's only one way to have peace with that God. And the only way to have peace with that God is through the acknowledgement that I am a sinner, a rebel against the holy God, that I need to repent of my sins, turning from them, and put my faith only in Christ, the Son of God, for my forgiveness. And I put my hope in anything else, faith plus any good work, I have confused the gospel. It is only good news if it's trust in Christ alone, by His grace alone, for His glory alone. And I believe that, and I want everybody here to believe that, and if you don't believe that, I want to talk to you about believing that. But if you do believe that, how comfortable do you have to be here to not go tell others about that? And I realize it's hard because you have to give up your reputation, that respectable reputation you've worked hard to preserve, intelligent, funny, good-looking, accomplished, successful, polite. Nice, respectable. Well, may I remind you of what we looked at a couple weeks ago in Acts 14. Sometimes we have to renew our vows to being fools for Christ. Because if you talk like this and you think like this, you will be like Noah was in the days of Noah. You'll be thought of as insane until you're no longer insane. Christ comes back, and they wish they only knew what you knew. For those of you who are not in Christ, it needs to be very clear this morning what Jesus is repeatedly saying. When He comes back, there's no mulligans, there's no do-overs, there's no one more question, there's no more, let me just grab this thing before we go. It's done as sure as the words coming out of my mouth to be finished it's done and then it's all of eternity if you don't want God now God will grant you that desire for all of eternity you will not have God then either at least not in a way of grace and mercy you will know him only for his justice and his wrath. And he'll be right to do so. Because he is a holy God that you've been wondering, is there any righteousness in this world that makes all of the wrong things right? There is. Friend, you and I are part of the problem as well. But he in his mercy and his grace has given us hope. And that's why I want you to see, look what he says in verse 51. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Jesus talking here. You know, Jesus, that Middle Eastern, long-haired hippie, just send a flower, not a fist. Jesus, just give a hug. No, Jesus who speaks more about hell than any other. Jesus who loves the people enough to tell them the truth even when it's not what they want to hear. Jesus who says later on in chapter 25, verse 11, Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But He answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I think what's so scary as I read those words, it reminds me of what Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 25, verse 7, uh, after 20, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, the very end of Matthew 7 Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Why? because he goes on to say they built their house on something other than faith alone and Christ alone. That's the most loving thing Jesus could tell you. That's the most loving thing Jesus could tell you is the truth about how to have peace with God now and in eternity. I'm encouraged by and humbled by the words of A.W. Tozer who says, salvation was brought Not by Jesus' fist, but by His nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that He might win. He destroyed His enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.